the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, Tampa Bay. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860-WGULAM. The controversy surrounding Mr. Trump and his statements and exclamations call into question responsible speech and First Amendment rights. Although we may not agree with what a politician says, as long as they are not inciting violence, then it is legitimate under our Constitution and way of life. As we all know, freedom of speech is one of the guaranteed rights of the First Amendment, and the first ten amendments are called the Bill of Rights. They were added after the Constitution was ratified by three-quarters of the states as a prerequisite to Virginia and a few other states signing the Constitution integral to the process of ratifying the Bill of Rights. James Mason was one of the most vocal and the great champion of our Bill of Rights. So what guarantees do we have under the First Amendment? We have freedom of speech, a freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. However, free speech is not absolute, and the Supreme Court has ruled on this in a number of cases. In times of war, the government has extraordinary powers including the right to suppress certain speech if it is considered to be inflammatory and against the objectives of the government in prosecuting a war. Eugene Debs was the leader of the Socialist and Communist Party at the turn of the last century. When World War I erupted and the United States became involved in 1917, Debs made inflammatory speeches regarding the war and regarding the draft. He had tempered his speeches in order to comply with the Espionage Act, which President Wilson had pushed through Congress in an attempt to maintain domestic stability and avoid terrorist attacks as well as support the troops fighting in Europe. The United States took Debs to court and attempted to prosecute him for criminal acts. He challenged this in the Supreme Court, and the court found that Debs' intention and effect of obstructing the draft and recruitment of the war, or for the war, was illegal under the Espionage Act, and this was upheld as a rightful conviction by the Supreme Court. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes stated that Debs' case was essentially the same as a previous case that was tried in 1919, in which the court upheld a similar conviction. The Supreme Court 
as I mentioned, decided against Debs and maintained the power of the Espionage Act, which was pushed through Congress by President Wilson during World War I. Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison and loss of his citizenship. So the right of the government during times of war and national crisis is expanded and is upheld by the Supreme Court, and has been so in a number of cases. Does this mean that we do not have the right to speak out against war? No, not at all. We certainly have that right, and the massive protests by the baby boomers against the Vietnam War is a good example. However, there were people who were prosecuted for inciting riots and inflammatory speech against the war. We do have the right to disagree. And, as many of us know from the Vietnam era, if we're pacifists, we can still serve as a medic or in some non-combat position and fulfill our duty to our country without personally participating in violent activities. A lot of people consider what Trump is saying and doing as an abuse of the freedom of speech, and that calls into question whether or not there are different tests that have to be met depending upon who you are and what your status is in society. Is freedom of speech an absolute right under our Constitution? Is Senator Rand Paul's statement regarding immunizations legitimate under our freedom of speech? Well, certainly it's irresponsible. However, he has the right to voice his opinions. Scientific data is data that can be challenged. And although he is wrong and he incites or did incite people not to immunize their children, which is against the law in most states, he did not violate, at least as far as I know, the First Amendment test on freedom of speech. Does that call into question his professional standing, or should it? Well, certainly if a physician incites people not to do what is scientifically proven and in the best health of the community and are the laws of the state, then he may come under review by the State Board of Medicine in the state in which he practices, depending upon the rules and regulations of that state. Does that mean he could lose his license over making such a incorrect and ridiculous remark? No, not necessarily, but he certainly could be called onto the carpet. I doubt that'll happen with Senator Paul, as he has power and status that very few of us do. Now, I think he has abused that from my medical position, but that does not mean that he does not have the right to say what he said. Now, another case in my lifetime was Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, and this was considered a landmark case based on the First Amendment. And the court held that government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless the speech is directed to inciting and is likely to incite eminent lawless activities or actions. In particular, it struck down Ohio's criminal syndicalism statute because that statute broadly prohibited the mere advocacy of violence. Another case, Whitney versus California, was overruled and doubt was cast on Schneck versus the United States and Abrams versus the United States, as well as other cases that had come up previously. Now, Brandenburg was a Ku Klux Klan member and leader in rural Ohio, and he contacted a reporter at the Cincinnati television station close to where he lived and invited him to cover a Ku Klux Klan rally that would take place in Hamilton County, Ohio. This was in the summer of 1964. Portions of the rally were filmed. There were several people in robes and hoods, some carrying firearms, burning crosses, 
and then making speeches. And one of the speeches made reference to the possibility of revengeance against, quote, niggers and Jews and those who supported them. One of the speeches also claimed that our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court continues to suppress the white Caucasian race. Now, as we all know, the Ku Klux Klan is a racist organization. During this rally, the KKK announced plans for a march on Washington to take place on the 4th of July. Brandenburg was charged with advocating violence under Ohio's criminal laws that had been passed in that state. And for his participation in the rally and for the speech that he made, the statue which was enacted in 1919 during the first communist scare proscribed advocating the duty, necessity, and propriety of crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform, and voluntary assembling within the society group or assemblage of persons formed to teach or advocate the doctrines of criminal syndication. <clears throat> syndication. The court struck down Ohio's conviction of this Ku Klux Klan member and upheld that he did have the freedom of speech to voice his racist views since he had not incited violence or any other criminal activity, but merely spoken his emotions, right or wrong. And of course, this swings both ways. As you may recall, when President Obama was first running for president in the primaries in 2008, the minister of his church in Chicago had made a number of racist comments against Caucasians, and it was called into question whether or not President Obama was in agreement with and advocating this racist point of view on behalf of his church and his pastor, and whether or not that would make him unfit to be president. Well, certainly the pastor has an absolute right under the Constitution, as did members of the Ku Klux Klan, to voice their concerns and their views, racist or not. However, there was no incitement to perform any illegal or violent acts. There was no lewdness or obscenity in, involved in the opinions expressed by President Obama's minister. And Obama was not inherently advocating the views of his pastor, but rather he was attending a service, and whether that was to pray and meditate or to show support for his family or to praise his God in the way that he sees fit is immaterial. That's his right. However, if we act on the sermons and involve ourselves in illegal activity on the basis of our racist views or incite violence or riots or lewd and lascivious behavior, then we can be held responsible. And the First Amendment protection does not extend to that. Well, this calls into question whether or not we have the right to rebel against our government if we feel that it has become too oppressive and too overwhelming and Certainly the Second Amendment, conveniently tucked behind the First Amendment, does provide us the right to maintain arms and the ability to quickly form a militia to rebel against an onerous federal government. Now, if a few of us try this, most certainly we'll be held responsible for illegal speech under the First Amendment and the court's views on this. But if large segments of society rebel, as the southern states did in 1861, then that's a gray area. President Lincoln believed that under our Constitution, 
the states did not have the right to rebel once they had joined the Union, and he therefore prosecuted the Civil War. On that basis, as well as on his own moral beliefs that slavery and indentured servitude were evils that had to be stopped, on the first point of preserving the Union and the belief that the states did not have the right to secede, he had broad support in the North and in the West. However, on the issue of slavery, the country was divided in both the North and the South. And in this extraordinary period of our history, President Lincoln bent the Constitution to what he considered to be his constitutionally delegated rights as president in a time of war and crisis. And we all know that he suspended writs of habeas corpus and other constitutionally protected rights in the name of prosecuting the war against the South. Back to the Brandenburg trial and the Ku Klux Klan, the Ohio courts had convicted Brandenburg saying that his First and Fourteenth Amendment rights to freedom of speech had not been violated and dismissed Brandenburg's constitutional argument. The Supreme Court reversed this decision against Brandenburg, holding that government cannot constitutionally punish abstract advocacy of force or law violation. The basis of this being that the Ku Klux Klan had traditionally been a violent organization and had the court made it clear that abstract advocacy of force or law violation were not punishable and that one could say or speak their opinion regarding fellow members of society without actually and concretely inciting violence or lawless acts. Interestingly, the majority opinion of the Supreme Court was per curiam, which means that the ruling was issued as an institutional ruling rather than authored and signed by an individual justice, so that all of the justices agreed, and they agreed in this as an institution to make a firm statement about First Amendment rights. Now, the justices were looking at the clear and present danger test, and you say, I didn't know there were tests in courts. Absolutely. The court is based on legal science and the evolution of the law under our system, dating back to the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons and, of course, the beginning of the modern era of law after William the Conqueror defeated the Anglo-Saxons and claimed England as his own. And don't forget that William the Conqueror was basically a Viking a few generations removed from his forebears who had negotiated to take over northwest France on behalf of the King of France and in return would protect the French from any other Viking tribes that tried to attack. So the richness of our law and the hybridization of our law from the intermixing of the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons after William the Conqueror defeated the Anglo-Saxon at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 marks the beginning of our current basis of law. And of course this undergoes revision and the court is subject to public pressure and public views, public opinions, morals and values, which we know are not defined by gods or God, but rather by men and women, by our society. And our beliefs and our morals and values change from time to time and evolve over decades and centuries. 
And the court also evolves. And instead of using the clear and present danger test, the opinion of at least one of the justices was that imminent lawless action must be present in order for criminality of freedom of speech to be prosecuted. If you're just joining the show this morning, I'm talking about First Amendment rights and how it applies to you and me and different segments of society. The question remains, what is speech? What is freedom of speech and how does this play into our rights under the First Amendment? Written words, spoken words, expressive conduct, actions that do not necessarily involve the written or spoken word but do contain a message are all covered under our freedom of speech. Not surprisingly, the court has evolved over the decades and the two centuries to look not only at words and actions that might incite riots, rebellion, or other illegal activity, but also the rights of adolescents as well as you and I to express our beliefs in a peaceful way in a public venue such as a high school. In 1965, 13-year-old Mary Beth Tinker and her 15-year-old brother John Tinker attended an anti-Vietnam War rally, and part of the outcome was that those who were opposed to the war would wear black armbands for a period of time. So they decided to wear their armbands to school. And when the principal of the Des Moines High School became aware of the plan to wear these armbands, all the principals and the school board, I would presume, met and adopted a policy that any student wearing an armband to school would be asked to remove it, and if they refused, then the student would be suspended. Well, on December 16th, the Tinker kids wore their black armbands to school, and they were told to take them off or be suspended. And they refused, and so they were suspended, and they wore their armbands until the beginning of the new year. Obviously, Christmas break was between the 16th of December and the new year, so not much was lost academically. But a suit came out of this, and the results of this case were that students do not, in a public school, do not surrender their constitutional rights simply by entering a public school. So the Constitution, and more specifically the First Amendment, has also opened up its arms to embrace the public venue of public schools and the right of students to express their beliefs in a peaceful way without inciting any illegal or riotous activities. Now, the school, according to the Supreme Court, had the burden of showing that the student speech materially and substantially interfered with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school and without colliding with the rights of others. In other words, that their right of free speech would not block someone else's rights under the Constitution. And so that was the acid test for the Supreme Court in this setting. And they said that the kids did have that right. And therefore, we now have public schools with the First Amendment rights in place becoming a place where adolescents can express their First Amendment rights or exercise their First Amendment rights and express their various and different beliefs, whether it be spoken, written, or by display as a black armband. This doesn't hold true, as far as I know, in private schools. And case in point is my son, when he was in junior high, was upset with an examination, and he wrote the F word 
and the S word at the bottom describing how he felt about the exam. Of course, he, as well as his parents, that being me, were called into the principal's office, and it was explained to him that he did not have that right. He did not have that freedom at a private school, and he argued that he did under the Constitution. So we sat down and looked at the constitutional rights and where they apply. And although I'm not a constitutional lawyer, it appeared to me that the right of free speech is in public places, public schools, public parks, public streets, public buildings. And, of course, the various jurisdictions have the right within these public areas to set certain rules and regulations in order to maintain some order in society. And in most jurisdictions, you have to obtain a permit to conduct a peaceful demonstration in a public place. And so my son learned the valuable lesson that saying the F word or the S word or writing it in school, in his private school, was not permitted. Even if it did not have any intent to incite any riots or lewd or lascivious actions, even if the intent was purely an expression of his feelings and his belief under his rights in the First Amendment. So we have to look at this not only in light of what is allowed and what is not allowed, but also in light of where we can say these things. And we look at someone like Donald Trump, who is saying things that many people believe is inciting hatred and illegal activities, and of course it is not. He is entitled to his opinion regarding Islamists and Islam and Muslims, and whether or not it is palatable to the majority of society is yet to be seen. We'll see how the vote turns out in a few months, but it certainly is not a violation of the First Amendment rights, and I think that this is an increasingly difficult problem because of the left wing's desire to suppress freedom of speech that they do not feel is in keeping with their personal beliefs and suppressing freedom of speech in order to institute a society that is essentially without borders and without differences between individuals. And these are all noble ideals However, it has to be done within the framework of the legal system that we have evolved. Another high school case that was brought before the court in the 1980s was uh, Matthew Fraser versus the Bethel High School system in Pierce County, Washington. Apparently, this junior high school student delivered a speech to 600 of his fellow students advocating the election of one of his friends to a class office. He had discussed the speech with two teachers prior to delivering it, and they had advised him that they thought it was inappropriate and that he would get himself into trouble with the principal and the school. He went ahead with his speech and uh, made several references to male genitalia, saying things like, I know a man who is firm, he's firm in his pants, He's firm in his shirt. He's firm in his character. But most of all, his belief in you, the students of Bethel, 
and he is firm. And, of course, a bunch of 14-year-old boys immediately seized upon this and hooting and hollering and suggestive gestures were made. And a school counselor reported this young man to the administration. And, of course, he was called before the school and it was noted that the disciplinary rules of the school prohibited uses of, of obscene language and I would assume gestures as well in the school. Conduct which, quote, conduct which materially and substantially interferes with the educational process is prohibited, including the uses of, of obscene, profane language or gestures. Now, he was disciplined and he took this to the Supreme Court or to the state courts and it worked its way up to the Supreme Courts. And the results were that lewd, indecent, or plainly offensive speech for the sake of that, that is, for the sake of the speech itself, are not covered under the First Amendment. And that First Amendment rights for students are not equal to adult students. This was one of the tests. Now, students do have a right to constitutional law and constitutional protection, and the school system cannot unduly infringe on those rights. However... The school may also set some reasonable limits in order and lewd and lascivious or licentious behavior or actions or words that interfere with the main goal of the school, which is educational, can be prohibited by the school district. And so the court upheld Seattle schools and their right to say to this young man that he could not give speeches or submit in writing as part of his schooling anything that would be considered lewd or licentious and would incite other students to behave in a lewd and licentious way because obviously this would interfere with the purpose of the school, which is education. If you've got a bunch of 14-year-old boys who are sexually acting out, you've got anarchy. Another case involving a high school student was the Giles versus Marino School District and this was in 2004. Now, Zach Giles was a 13-year-old student at Williamston Middle School, or Middle High School in Vermont, and he wore a T-shirt that criticized President Bush as a chicken hawk president. The T-shirt also accused the president of being a former alcoholic and cocaine addict, and to make his point, the shirt displayed images of drugs and alcohol. Well, this went unnoticed or uncommented on by the administration. However, on a field trip... Zach wore the T-shirt, and one of the parents chaperoning the the field trip complained to the teacher that was also on the field trip. And the teacher gave Zach three choices. He could cover up the images that were seen as uh, inappropriate in that setting. He could turn that T-shirt inside out, or he could put another shirt or jacket on over his T-shirt. Specifically, the parent and the teacher cited the images of drugs and alcohol on the t-shirt and felt that this violated the school code and the school code at that time was that any aspect of a person's appearance which constitutes a real hazard to the health and safety of self and others or is otherwise distracting is unacceptable as an expression of personal taste examples clothing displaying alcohol drugs violence obscenity and racism is outside of the school's guidelines and it's not responsible and integrity is not maintained and therefore you cannot wear that well he was 
again, given these choices when he came to school a few other times. And he finally did cover up the alcohol and drugs with duct tape, but he also sued the school district. And so the question arises, is this form of speech protected by the First Amendment? Should Zach have been allowed to wear the shirt to school? Did his actions create a material and substantial interference with the school's effective operation? Did he incite anyone to perform any illegal activities? Was it lewd and decent or offensive speech? And was the school district's policy constitutional? Well, the court actually decided in favor of the student and specifically said that images of martini glasses or bottles or other images that suggest or promote alcohol or drug use or abuse were not indecent or lewd or offensive speech. And this had been tried in another case earlier. The images may cause school administrators displeasure, and it could be seen as insulting or in poor taste, but certainly it was not lewd or lascivious, and it did not incite any illegal activities on the parts of the other students. So the court agreed that Zach's T-shirt did not cause any disruption or confrontation in the school, and the defendants in the case contend that they had a reasonable belief that it would, but the court did not see that, and they did not make that case, and therefore his right to freedom of speech was upheld under the Constitution. Again, this is a public school, not a private school, and the rules are different. Our freedom of speech applies in public places and in the appropriate venues with the appropriate constitutional guarantees and the appropriate jurisdictional rules and regulations, such as obtaining a permit to hold a peaceful march. You say, well, why do we need a permit? Well, we need a permit because if we're going to march down Main Street, then the police will have to block off parts of Main Street so that there are no accidents. And if it's controversial, such as the Ku Klux Klan marching in Ohio or in Skokie, Illinois, then the police will be needed in order to keep the pros and the cons from fighting each other. The Ku Klux Klan is marching, and the anti-Ku Klux Klan people are there with rocks and stones or whatever. And, of course, if you're going to have a peaceful march, not only do you need to protect people from traffic, but also from each other. And that's, although strange, it's part of our system. Now, in times of peace, there's little need for jurisdictions to fight with individuals regarding their freedom of speech. However, in times of war, it's a different story. And as we saw with Woodrow Wilson's legislation during World War One and the incarceration of Eugene Debs, which was consequently upheld by the Supreme Court, since he implicitly incited people not to register for the draft, which was illegal at that time. We were at war, and the country had a right to implement reasonable expectations of the citizenry, which includes, for most guys, being eligible for the draft and going to war, and if not fighting directly because of conscientious objections to violence, then certainly being involved in health care or supplies or some nonviolent aspect uh, is a reasonable expectation of every member of society who's eligible. And to interfere with that in a time of war where certain powers are granted to the president and the Congress, not normally held in peacetime, then 
freedom of speech takes on a different aspect and a different color, if you will, and the rules change. But in general, we're at peace most of the time, and most of the time the Supreme Court uh, has upheld individual rights to freedom of speech as long as it doesn't interfere with function of a public school or it doesn't incite people to violence or to perform illegal activities or it's not lewd and licentious and does not incite other people to act out sexually in a public place. So freedom of speech is situational in that in times of crisis, war, economic collapse, natural disasters, or internal rebellion, the president and the Congress and the jurisdictions may do what they feel they have to do in order to preserve the general security and the general health and well-being. And that's how it should be. This is a democracy. Early on in our republic, the Sedition Act was passed in 1798 by President Adams and the Federalist-controlled House and Senate. And this said that any person who shall write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing against the government of the United States or either House of Congress or the President with intent to defame or to bring them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them the hatred of the good people of the United States shall be punished by a fine of up to $2,000, big chunk of money back then, and imprisonment not to exceed two years. Now, the left saw this as an assault on their freedom, the right at that time being the Federalists, who, by the way, were pro-big government, and the left-wingers or the liberals were the state's writers, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. From what I recall, the Sedition Act of 1798 was only utilized against one newspaper editor, who I think was in Philadelphia, but don't quote me on that. And he lost his paper, and I don't think he did any jail time, but he certainly was wrecked financially by this. The reason that the president and the Congress enacted this law at that point in time was because of the world war that was raging, once again in Europe, between France and Great Britain, and the Democratic Republicans, who were led by most notably by Thomas Jefferson, had been pro-Napoleon, had been pro-France, and anti-England, and it was a monumental effort by the Federalist to keep the United States from becoming embroiled at its young age in another world war. Our own revolution, as well as the war in 1760, we called it the French and Indian War, had been a world war. Both had been world wars. They had involved soldiers from three to four continents. They had involved multiple navies from around the world. These wars had disrupted commerce and shipping, not only in the West, but in the Mediterranean, as well as in the East. And in retrospect, rightfully so, President Adams did what he felt was necessary in order to keep us out of the European War, the World War. And eventually, the Democratic Republicans realized that the revolution in France had devolved not into a democracy, but as Alexander Hamilton had predicted, into an autocracy or a monarchy or a dictatorship, if you will, a Caesar, and that it did. That's what Napoleon had become.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Governors all along the East Coast have ordered emergency preparations with Hermine threatening to regain hurricane strength in the Atlantic Ocean today. The storm has caused two deaths, damaged property, and left hundreds of thousands of people in the dark from Florida to Virginia. Despite continued skepticism that it can work, a deal to boost U.S. and Russian military cooperation to fight ISIS and other extremists in Syria is edging closer. Secretary of State John Kerry says it could come tomorrow. Trade tensions looming over the G20 summit in China this weekend. European Union leaders are calling for China to take action on its bloated steel industry and are defending an order to Ireland to collect taxes from Apple. And the search is over for two of the most accomplished alpine climbers of their generation after the families called off the search yesterday in Pakistan. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of Can Care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. If you're over the age of 50 and considering buying an annuity in the next 60 days, I have some urgent news for you. Don't buy an annuity until you understand the pros and cons of annuities. A free book to help you maximize your retirement income from PBS host and three-time author Josh Melberg has been released. This book reveals little-known truths about annuity strategies in simple-to-understand terms. Grab a pen right now because we're about to offer you this free book that unlocks the five little-known secrets we believe baby boomers and seniors should know before buying an annuity. Call 800-422-3838 now to get your personalized copy rushed to you today. Do you want to avoid mistakes baby boomers and seniors can make when they buy annuities? Those mistakes now could be costly later to you and your family. Call 800-422-3838. That's 800-422-3838. Employees of J.D. Melberg Financial have the appropriate licenses for the products they offer. In the Declaration of Independence, the founders say it's self-evident that God created man and gave him rights that other men can't take away. Dave Perkins. I've pointed this out numerous times to smart people that I like and trust who don't happen to believe the God story. I have yet to get from any of those people a rational alternative explanation, if self-evident truth isn't true, for why they have rights. This is Dave Perkins. Meet you here bright and early Sunday morning at 5 on AM860, The Answer. Watch for a heavy thunderstorm today. Otherwise, we'll have a mix of clouds and sunshine with a high of 90. Mostly cloudy skies this evening, low 76. Then for our Labor Day Monday and Tuesday, it'll be partly sunny both days with a thunderstorm in parts of the area. High tomorrow and Tuesday, 89. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM 860, The Answer. 
may say, well, Napoleon did good things for Europe. Yes, he did. He brought public health and education to all. He wanted to break down borders, much as we're trying to do today. He wanted to do, unite the continent. He wanted to make sure that everybody had an opportunity to not only be healthy and happy, but well-educated and have upward mobility and to get rid of the monarchy and the ruling classes. And I think those are all good ideals and ideas that most of us today support. However, he did it as an autocrat. Nevertheless, we stayed out of the big war the world was waging in the 1790s, and we know how it ended at Waterloo in 1815 with Napoleon's final defeat. Did the president do something that was unconstitutional? Did the Congress enact a law which was anti our First Amendment? And why did the founders early on pass such a law? Well, I think that President Adams believed that we were in a period of crisis, that we had had the quasi-war under his regime with the French and the Caribbean, and that United States ships and French ships had fired at each other. But basically, he had kept us out of the war in Europe, which, in retrospect, was a great thing. Now, the left would not think so because... They considered their rights violated at that time. Again, the left were the state's rightists. Abraham Lincoln took a number of steps to suppress treacherous behavior, believing that the nation must be able to protect itself in war against utterances and words and sayings, which would actually cause insubordination. can't have insubordination in the ranks during a major war going on, and he believed that the Constitution gave him the power to do that. And the president, during the war, gave orders several times, expanding military control over civilian areas in the north, permitting military arrest and trials of civilians, and suspending the writ of habeas corpus. And as we all know, habeas corpus says that we have a right to be presented in court and that we cannot be held without bond offered, except in most unusual of cases, like serial murders, and we cannot be held by jurisdictions without proper representation, without a speedy trial. And if a writ of habeas corpus is issued, then even a terrorist purportedly is to be brought into the court publicly and read the charges against him and expect a trial. And we see this today, uh, the big debate between the left and the right with the prisoners at uh, Guantanamo, and this has been a big rallying point for President Obama and the members of his party who feel strongly about this, that the terrorists should have been brought to trial, that the writ of habeas corpus should not have been suspended, and that they should have been tried within the criminal justice system of the United States, whereas the Bush administration and his followers felt that they were war criminals and that they should be tried by military courts, such as the war criminals were tried after World War II at Nuremberg. Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution says, quote, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. That is, that the police can't hold you incognito. They can't keep you locked in a cell and not bring you to court or not inform your family or friends where you are or what's happened to you and without making any formal charges in court. Unless, unless in the case of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. 
So here's the big rift. When is the public safety in play? Rebellion or invasion? Well, are terrorists, are they invasion? Are they invading us? Or is this an invasion? What if they're our own citizens and they're committing terrorist acts in the name of another jurisdiction, another country, or another belief? Are they subject to the rights of the Constitution, that their writ of habeas corpus is not suspended, that they won't be held for extended periods of time without having a trial, without having the charges against them read in a public venue and be tried in a public court of law? And the Constitution has to have some flexibility, of course, in times of, of public safety or rebellion, uh, that the government can step in and implement certain amounts of order that are not commonly used during times of peace or times of tranquility. And, of course, the same acid test has to be applied to freedom of speech. So what is freedom of speech? Is it the right to say whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we are? Of course not. Is it bad taste? No, it's not. Is it something that's contrary to your belief as a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent? No. Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton may say what they think, as long as they don't incite riots, they don't incite people to break the law, they don't incite lewd or lascivious behavior, that they're not using sexually explicit words or actions that would incite people to misbehave in that way. And from where I sit... I think Trump came closer to abridging his First Amendment rights when he made reference to the genitalia of some of his opponents in the primaries. Now, obviously, it was in jest and uh, did not incite anyone to go out and do anything sexually inappropriate, at least as much as I know. But talking about terrorism and about restricting the inflow of immigrants from countries that are inciting and producing and philosophically enhancing the idea that violence in the name of God is okay is not an abridgment of freedom of speech. It's not something that's unconstitutional. Now, the way it's said or the way it's presented in the press may make it appear that it's in bad taste or that it's ignorance. Of course, you have to listen to the whole speech to get the the whole idea. And Will someone who is potentially to become the president display his inability or her inability to conduct the responsibilities of the presidency by speaking the way that Mr. Trump has been speaking? Well, I think that's the test of the democracy, and we'll have to vote and see how that goes. Currently, it it appears he's lagging behind his Democratic opponent, but that's pretty typical of the press. It's pretty typical of the period of the election process that we're in now. And the only polls that really count, as I've said before on the show, are the polls that are taken within a week of the actual vote. And then they have to be scientifically presented so that people who are polled are actually people who are going to vote or have already voted, as my wife and I do, by absentee ballot. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and the First Amendment, like many aspects of our laws, is flexible, as it should be. Law should not be absolute, but it should be there to 
protect us and to help us interact in a positive and socially meaningful and productive way. Well, that's all the time we have this week, guys. And I look forward to being with you next week. As always, I appreciate you being here. And I wish everybody a great week. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. From Washington, D.C., it's the Cal Thomas Commentary. And now, here is America's number one syndicated columnist, Cal Thomas. Donald Trump made a successful quick trip to Mexico on Wednesday. He said he and Mexican President Nieto agreed that nations have a right to build walls for self-protection and that more needed to be done to stem the flow of guns and drugs on both sides of the border. Even Trump opponents in the GOP said nice things about the visit. Trump returned to Phoenix and gave a strong speech outlining what he would do with criminal illegal aliens and to shore up the border. Speaking of a wall, did you know the Obama administration has spent $75 million on a wall between Mexico and Guatemala to help it secure its southern border? Probably not, since the big media don't report on it. The State Department website calls the Merida Initiative, quote, an unprecedented partnership between the United States and Mexico to fight organized crime and associated violence while furthering respect for human rights and the rule of law, unquote. Now, isn't that what Trump is proposing? Why is one wall okay with the administration and another wall not okay? It's politics, and Trump has won this round. I'm Cal Thomas in Washington. For a free copy of today's commentary and other information, visit calthomas.com or send a written request mentioning the date and subject to Values Through Media, Post Office Box 7065, Arlington, Virginia, 22207. Tax-deductible gifts support these commentaries and are appreciated. Listen again next time for the Cal Thomas Commentary. Are you a responsible person who finds yourself growing deeper and deeper in credit card debt and you're not sure how to fix the problem? Then get ready for a toll-free number that will put you on a path to financial recovery. Trinity Debt Management is a nonprofit organization that will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment. Put a stop to late fees and over-limit charges and reduce your interest rates by as much as 60%. You'll save thousands and become debt-free for keeps. It's not a loan. It's a smart way to relieve your stress, meet your obligations, and preserve your self-respect. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Gather up your bills and call this toll-free number for a free, no-obligation debt analysis. 1-800-793-9159. That's 1-800-793-9159. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-793-9159. AM860, The Answer. AM860, The Answer. Weekend Rewind. Mike Gallagher. The big picture over what Kim Strassel over at the Wall Street Journal calls the U.S. Department of Clinton is that national security was compromised. And to me, it, 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 we can argue all day long about the Clintons trying to keep their emails private and Hillary Clinton's daughter, Chelsea, using... Uh, a fake name, and all this weird, superfluous stuff, was the United States of America exposed, vulnerable, less safe because of the reckless, possibly illegal actions 
of Mrs. Clinton. Trey Gowdy was on TV yesterday and, and pointed something out that was so stunning. And we've lost all of this in this back and forth between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and who's a bigot and who's a racist and who does the Ku Klux Klan like and all this all this nonsense. Something stunning was revealed yesterday. When the FBI director, Jim Comey, announced in July that they would not be bringing criminal charges against Hillary Clinton for storing and transmitting top-secret classified information on a number of private servers, he made an argument, as Katie Pavlich writes at townhall.com, that our investigation looked at whether there is evidence that this w- that this was done in violation of a federal statute making it a felony to mishandle classified information either intentionally or in a grossly negligent way. So intent is a big part of this, right? Well, according to Trey Gowdy, he saw no questions from the FBI, and this is very important, no questions raised by the FBI of the Clinton investigation as to intent. Trey Gowdy said on Fox, there's no question she handled them negligently and extremely carelessly. Those were Jim Comey's words from the FBI. But he said he didn't go forward forward with charges specifically because he could not establish criminal intent. Well, according to Trey Gowdy, the FBI didn't ask anything about intent. She wasn't indicted because the FBI didn't even inquire about intent, which is mind-blowing. The Mike Gallagher Show, weekdays, 9 a.m. to noon, on AM860, The Answer. AM860, The Answer. Online at am860theanswer.com. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. Last week, shocking images came streaming from the beaches of France. As Alyssa Rubin reported for the New York Times, the photos showed armed police surrounding Muslim women on beaches and ordering them to remove their modest clothes or leave. Many mayors on the Mediterranean coast have adopted legislation making it illegal for Muslim women to wear the burkini on French beaches. What is uniting so many leaders and citizens across the political spectrum in France? It is that nation's absolute commitment to secularity. In an article for The Telegraph, Tim Stanley points out that the opposition in France to the Burkini and to Islam is symbolic of its opposition to any form of conservative religion, any kind of theology that would bring a moral code in conflict with that of the French secular law and culture. If one were to try to invent a cartoonish distortion of that kind of secularism, one could do no better than what actually happened on French beaches just last week. I'm Albert Moeller. Well, all right now, what do you think about it, boys? How much would he give for it? Here we go. Man says $100. Here we go. Nobody get two, three, five hundred, seven. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.